This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is part of our ongoing series on race and racism, our exploration of what makes it hard to talk about, what whites still don't understand about racism, and why. Today I'll be talking with racial justice educator and writer Debbie Irving about her account of, quote, waking up white, her story of becoming aware of how being a white person shaped so many things in her life that she took for granted, and how she began to learn more about race in a way that actually made a difference. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Debbie. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having me on. So I, I read your book, and I confess that I read it thinking, oh, yeah, I know all this already. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I started it. And, of course, you end up the book by talking about, like, being comfortable with the things that you don't know that you even don't know, mm-hmm. and that that's part of um, being engaged in anti-racism work. And I just want to say that your book was such a wonderful experience of discovering things that I didn't know that I didn't know. And I love that. And I, so I want to start out by asking you about how it really began for you. How, what would you say is, the, is kind of a moment where you really got it that you had to educate yourself and kind of start to learn more about racism? Well, if you will notice on the back of the book, it says one aha moment launched Debbie on a journey of discovery. And in fact, there were many, many ahas and they continue all the time. And Peggy McIntosh, who I know spoke to you and your audience, uh, said to me at one point, and she thought I was moving too quickly with the book project. She said, I am in my 80s and I am still having ahas, Debbie. So all that said, there really was one moment in the midst. This wasn't the thing that started me, but this was the one moment that pushed me so far, so fast. It was about the GI Bill. And my, by the way, my father was a World War II veteran, as were my uncles and many of the neighbors um, that I grew up around. And I had heard about the GI Bill. I had heard about how it was a real... It was proof that America was this wonderful place, the way it would invest in its returning GIs. And my father got a free law school education on that bill, and he and my mother also bought their first home with that bill. So the GI Bill offered returning GIs a very low rate, uh, very low money down, if any down, housing subsidy and free higher education. So my parents took full advantage of this, and I just assumed it was available to everyone. I learned in watching Race, the Power of Illusion, which is a wonderful three-part PBS series, that in fact the GI Bill benefits were not available to most of the one million black GIs. And I will say that I didn't even know that there were black GIs fighting in World War II, because if you think about all the World War II movies we have, they've been whitewashed. I don't see black faces in those films. So A, it was a surprise to me there were black GIs, and B, it was horrifying to me uh, when I learned that those subsidies were not available. And the kicker was that there was nowhere in the bill that said blacks need not apply. It was all in the structures of the way the systems work together. So the Federal Housing Authority in the mid-19th century did not lend in areas that were called redlined, which were neighborhoods that were drawn in red that were considered hazardous to lend in. 
And what makes a neighborhood hazardous? Two things. One, the condition of the building. Two, the skin color of the residents. So the FHA would not lend through the GI Bill to a black GI to go buy uh, a home because he couldn't buy in a neighborhood that they would lend in. And on the education front, there was a quota system. So those spots filled up quickly. There was another reason. When my white father came home, he was married to my white mother, and both of those, my grandparents, both sets of grandparents were retired comfortably with pensions and the Social Security uh, benefits that they were getting. Social Security was a prior racialized public program in that it excluded domestic and agricultural workers who are disproportionately black and brown. And so think of what the my siblings and I got. We got this excellent education. My father had a quick, easy commute to Boston. Um, there was superior policing, medical care, food supply. So all of these housing determines so much of your quality of life and your social network. So when I graduated from college, I had a great education. I also had um, a great network of people to pick up the phone and call looking for jobs. So that was the big aha. The night I learned that, I could not come home. I called my husband and I said, I need you to just hold down the fort, take care of the kids. I cannot come home. And I went and I drove out, you know, I don't know, 10 miles away to this home I had grown up in and I parked in front of it. And I just stared and I stared and I stared for hours trying to take in this reality that I had basically had a socially engineered upbringing. And until then, I had thought the playing field in America was completely level. So that was the ba-ba-ba-ba moment. No kidding. I mean, I'm sitting there sort of thinking, you know, do you feel like your sense that sort of the world was fair and good was shattered in that moment? I mean, that's almost what it sounds like. Absolutely. What strikes me as I think back to it, it was not just a thought. It wasn't a series of thoughts. The way I felt in my body in that moment was there was this huge physiological response, this trembling. Yeah. So, so there you are, you've told your husband, look after the kids. You've driven out to your childhood home in Winchester, Mass. And you're sitting out there in your car. And do you in that moment sort of have some resolve? Like, uh, I want to do this. Like what happened next after you're sitting there trembling in the car? My only goal at that point was to be able to walk through the front door and if one of the kids saw me, you know, not fall to pieces. And so that's all I, that's as far as I got that night. But I did come home and my husband is one of the smartest people I know. And I said to him, what do you know about the GI Bill? And he basically said what I said. Oh, it's this fantastic program, you know, run by the government returning GIs. And I said, who do you think it was available to? He said, anybody who served in the war. Where, do you, where are you going? And I said, it excluded. I told him what I just told you. He said, that cannot be true. That's, that's not true. Where did you hear that? And it, this was only 2009. So there were computers. So there he went and Googled his way and came back sheet white. He said, I cannot believe this. He said, it's not a secret. It's right. You All you have to do is Google it. Right. So let me let me just make sure you said there were three parts to it. There was higher education. So your parents both went to graduate school on it. You said there were low interest loans and you said there was a subsidy for buying a house. And what I heard you, is that right? Yes. And the subsidy and the loan go together. That was okay. that was the housing component. So a housing component and an education compo- component. Okay. And your family benefited from both fully. 
And so I understood that because of redlining, African-Americans could not benefit from the housing part of it. Mm-hmm. Could they benefit from the graduate school part of it? Well, that was where there was this quota system so that the universities and colleges would have just a few spots reserved for, for, I don't know if it was people of color or people who were not white, black, I'm not sure what the language was at that time, but there was a quota system. And so those spots filled up. So even if they technically could have qualified for it, they couldn't use it. Yes. And there was that other component, which was, could their families afford to have them go off to college? or graduate school as opposed to be breadwinners for the family. And that's where that social security piece comes in. So my father did not have any obligation to support his parents or his wife's parents as a breadwinner because they were all set. They had both both had pensions from their jobs and social security benefits, which and that was that prior racialized program because they were white collar workers. So part of what we're seeing here is this kind of intergenerational fallout, that it it gets transmitted from generation to generation, the consequences of this up until the present. Exactly. And so when you think the wealth divide, which has has grown over time, you know, you can see it if you if you start to look at a family like mine. So my parents bought that house for seventeen thousand dollars somewhere in the mid to late 40s um, and sold it 40 years later for a million dollars. Well, that million dollars, along with all the money my parents packed away with my father's law career, uh, was inherited by me and my siblings. And I have lots of white friends who have inherited, uh, not even, we're not even talking huge sums of wealth, but we're talking, I, I don't have any friends, many friends who are white who are supporting their parents. Um, and most of them are inheriting enough money or getting support from their parents to help with the down payment for a house. And that's a real difference across the racial divide. Right. It's a huge leg up, so to speak. A huge leg up. Yeah. And the the bit about who can live in what neighborhoods, that still exists. People are still um, directed by realtors um, to neighborhoods that are more seen as more or less fitting for people according to race. I remember, I think it was actually in your book, a reference to it. Was it a Nightline uh, project where two people were sent to a town to be sort of settling there, and they both had a camera on them or something, and they were both looking for loans, and they were looking for housing, and they were settling into new neighborhoods, and it chronicled the profoundly different experience of two people, equal in every way except for race. That is such a good piece, and that's free online. That's Diane Sawyer, and that's a primetime episode. It's called True Colors. Anyone can Google that. Um, It's in two parts. Make sure you watch part one and part two. But, yeah, that's just amazing. Um, they take two guys fresh out of college, a black guy and a white guy. I think they even went to the same college, same age. They basically have them dress alike and send them out um, to the same store, you know, hours apart or minutes apart. And the different treatment they get on every at every turn is astounding. It's an eye opener. I mean, it sounds like um, I think this idea that we live in a in a fair and good and free country um once you really start looking at this, as your husband said, when you, all you have to do is Google it. It's right there. Mm-hmm. It's such a painful... I think whites are so protected from from really having to know this. Yes. And, you know, one of the really painful parts for me was that I did have friends of color. I had black friends and um, had had them for 20 years. And I, it, 
once the, my reality started, that my paradigm started to shift, I thought of all the times that they had tried to tell me. And I had minimalized what they said. Oh, she didn't mean it that way. Oh, you, you must have imagined it. Oh, forget about it. I would just brush off what they were saying or try to um, just change the subject in a way that I thought was helpful. And it was really not helpful. And in fact, they were really trying to do me the service of helping me see the world through a broader lens. Do you have any memory of, of what they were actually trying to tell you, Debbie? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, they. this is the interesting thing I find is that the comments stand out. And I think the reason I can remember each of these conversations so well is because I couldn't place it. I couldn't fit it into anything. Um, an example is uh, one of my husband's friends was staying with us, a college friend, a black guy, and he was just going down uh, to do some shopping in Boston, uh, and he was dressed to the nines. And I joked with him about it, and he said, he said, what do you think? A black man like me is going to go in sweatpants? And I was like, well, that's what I'd wear. And he said, you'd be coming to get me out of jail by the end of the day if I were to walk down Newberry Street. Newberry Street is a fancy shopping street in Boston um, in sweats. And I remember thinking, really? Is he sort of imagining things or being melodramatic? And, of course, I now know that, that he, of course, he knew what he was talking about. That's the other thing, I think, is that I was taught to um, discredit people who were of a lower class, of a different race, who somehow didn't fit the mold of the, the most trustworthy, the most viable American, which was the white, straight, uh, Christian, male, upper middle class, middle class in my case. Um, the other one that was really painful to reflect back on was when I was in nonprofit management working for First Night which um, listeners might know, it's the New Year's Eve celebration here in Boston. I brought a black woman who was a friend to the board because we were trying to diversify. And of course, I brought in like one of my three black friends, which is so tokenizing. It makes me, you know, sort of cringe to admit this stuff, but it's important to get it out and be honest about it. And there was a big fundraising event hosted by a number of foundations and corporations in the Boston area. So of all the board members, of course, I chose her to come with me and we walked over there and on the walk back she said that was so awful and I said well, what do you mean and she said I could just I was at this table with all white women and I could just see them trying to figure out how'd she get here where'd she go to college why does she speak so well and the thoughts that went through my mind are really shameful but I'm going to share them because I think this is where it gets important is to acknowledge the kind of thinking and bias we have my thought was you know she should be grateful that I invited her. And the other thoughts were, she must be making that up. People aren't thinking that. But of course, I, I'm i saying that, and I'm thinking that out of one side of my head, but out of the other side of my head, I know what she's talking about because I've had those thoughts. And so it's this incredible dissonance. And now I have spoken to enough white people that I know many experience it. It's this discomfort. It's this, it's an anxiety that bubbles up. And that's when people say, I'm so afraid of saying the wrong thing. Well, when your brain is bombarding you with these deeply biased messages, of course, we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. If I could play it over again, what I would say is, you know, um, I might say, 
tell me more. Or I might say, I'm so sorry I put you in that position. Because that's really, I think, what I, on some level, I understood that I had put her in that position. Right. And of course, out of very earnest good intentions, right. the way you could see it, you were thought you were doing something good at the time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's so hard is because um, so many of us, myself for sure, think that racist acts are acts that are just blatantly bigoted, cruel, mean, mean-spirited. And in fact, the impact on her was, was really uncomfortable. And uh, my intention can be as lovely as I like to imagine it is. And yet it's the impact is where I think in relationships we really need to focus. If someone tells you something hurts or was uncomfortable, that's what you need to stick with, in my opinion. It's interesting because as a psychiatrist, you know, we often talk about the distinction between intention and impact mm. and how often someone can have a very good Im- intention, but the impact on the other person can be devastating and it's a hard thing to hold together those you know the that someone's intention can be so good but the impact can still be awful and the urge to defend is overwhelming i find (laughs) i didn't mean it that way yes yes i'm a good person yes yes you know i part of what i loved about your book well one of the things i think the aha moments for me in reading your book was where you talked precisely about this, where you say um, how painful it is when, if I think about my own experience, if I'm trying to tell someone about something that really upset me and they respond to me with disbelief or with minimizing or skepticism or judgment, it's such an awful experience. It's so disconnecting. And I, I wonder how often that is the experience for people of color relating to white people. It's just like always having that experience that and I think I've done that and didn't I didn't realize it was something I could relate to I think the way you wrote it yeah like oh I know what that feels like it's awful and yeah and that's and this is such an interesting point because of course no white person can ever imagine what it's like um to be anything other than white but we can find these little windows into empathizing, which is what I hear you doing. And it is so crucial because everyone does know that experience. You know, the easiest one I can think of is when you're really nervous and someone says, calm down. Like, that's the worst thing. Try to relax. (laughs) Try to relax. Just relax. (laughs) And so, and so actually there's a term for this in the world of uh, racial justice, which is they're called microaggressions. And you don't have to feel aggressive to have uh, an impact that feels aggressive. Intention need not be aggressive to have an impact that feels aggressive. And it doesn't need to be a big, huge thing. The incident that I just described, the two incidents I described were, were what I would call microaggressions. Just little things that hit my friends in a really hard way. But if it's happening again and again all day long, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. Another thing that I really liked that you talked about was that you said you realized that you had a kind of jumpiness inside when you were relating to black people. Mm-hmm. And I just loved, I love the honesty of it. And I love that word jumpiness. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to ask you, what did you mean by that jumpiness? Well, you know, I'm a pretty energetic um, um, person anyway. So maybe everyone wouldn't experience it as jumpy, but Jumpy for me is nervous, um, 
just sort of that that buzzy uh, adrenaline, not in a good way. <laughs> the adrenaline, the adrenaline that comes with nerves. It's a nervous anxiety. Yes. Um, and that, boy, does that make you? It makes me so terrified. I'm going to say something stupid because no one's at their best when they're in that state. You know, we are actually more likely to say something stupid when we're when we're buzzed out like that. Right. That's right. Because we're so not really present. Exactly. Yeah. So I resonated with that. And I felt like, you know, part of what you're saying now is that um, without even knowing it, even with the best of intention, you can be doing things that are actually clueless and hurtful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's that reason to be jumpy or anxious. Um, I think a way that I can find jumpiness in myself um, around sort of interracial friendships is a fear that I'm doing that all the time in ways that I'm not aware, that the person is too worn out and exhausted to tell me, mm-hmm. and, and therefore will either just reject me, I, they won't like me, or um, I think it's a, it's a fear, uh, finally it's a fear of rejection, and a, f- mm. you know, and a feeling like a bad person. Mm-hmm. And that that's, you know, you spoke earlier about this sort of urge to defend yourself. And I mm-hmm. think this, this fear of being exposed as a bad person is really, pain, you know, it's painful. And, it's, and it's, I think that's part of the fear for me. So I'm curious to ask you, did you, when you first started out, Debbie, did you have that fear of being, a ba- you know, being exposed for being a bad person and rejected and not liked for that? Yes. And I think it's interesting that my first thought, what I would once have said is, I'm so afraid of saying something offensive. In fact, the real fear was not so much of saying something offensive as being seen as, as revealing my ignorance or as being seen as a bad person. So that was absolutely huge. It, but you know what got me over that real fast was the more I understood the kind of distress that um, our country has put uh, people of color in, the more I realized that I need to get over that fear real fast because compared to, you know, here I am worried about my self-image in a friendship with people who are worried about, are they going to get their job? Are they going to keep their job? Are they going to be able to buy a house in a certain neighborhood? Are they going to, um, you know, are their sons going to be thrown in jail because they're wearing the wrong outfit or they're in the wrong place? Or so the, when I started to stack up um, my stress love, what I was stressing out about next to what my friends of color were stressing out about, I thought, man, you've got to get over this really fast. <laughs> and, you know, and just the level of um, anxiety that most people of color have to carry with them into their workplaces, their classrooms, um, any, any time they're out of their homes. Uh, you know, that if I have to feel that just a little bit to build a friendship to the point where there's really enough mutual trust to feel that start to dissipate a little bit. That's, that's, I can put up with that. And it's actually, it's made me better in all my friend and all my relationships to be able to tolerate, um, vulnerability. Whose? Mine. Yes. Yeah. Well, cause I think that part, I mean, cause I'm hearing you, I'm thinking, so part of it, for me is also like the imperative to respond, you know, to, to problems that are so huge. But, but another thing seems to me to be, um, 
trusting that when I make a mistake that I won't judge myself. I mean, that there's some sort of internal trust of I can mess up a hundred times and I have to find a way to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm curious, has your capacity to kind of accept your own ignorance and blind spots and move on without beating yourself up? Has that, do you feel like that's grown? Oh my God. Yes. Immensely. I used to, yes, I used to be so attached to perfection in every area of my life and I've let that go and that's liberating. And I cannot tell you how much my friendships with friends of color have changed. It is just so um, bonding to talk about our common society from different perspectives. And so it's not, oh, here, poor person of color, let me hear your woes. It's like, wow, can you believe how in this same social structure, how differently we experience this? You know, well, where were you in 1983? Well, where were you in this year? Well, how did, how did that happen for you? How did this happen for me? It's, it's actually a really rich way to connect. And lots of laughter, actually, which I think would surprise people. And what kind of things are you laughing about? Well, <laughs> just recently, um, I wrote a play with uh, my colleague, Norma Johnson, who's a black woman, and uh, Lace Campbell. Lace is a biracial woman. And Norma is from Colorado. Lace is here in uh, Cambridge. So Norma came from Colorado to do the final week of rehearsals and premiere of the play. And she was living in my house with me. And one day she came up and she had folded, she had slipped downstairs at early, she got up before all of us and folded all the laundry and brought it upstairs. And I said, thank you. And I was putting it away and I went into her room and I said, you know what? I just have to come clean. I feel so awkward about this. There's a black woman in my house folding my laundry. This is like, am I doing, am I doing something wrong? Am I like reinforcing old social roles? And she just laughed, you know, we laughed and she said, no, this is just a time with like, I'm just, we're good friends. And I'm trying to just like, you know, you're having me stay at your house and I'm saying thank you by folding your laundry. And, but you know, moments like that. The relief, I mean, for me, listening to it feels like the relief of being able to name it. Yes. Like, I can imagine being in that situation, feeling that same incredible discomfort, but not, but having fear to even call it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I love that you felt the freedom to do that. It sounds, I mean, when you describe it, when you say it's liberating, um, you know, I think so often as a white person, I can feel like, okay, it's, I'm, I want to do the right thing by getting involved in sort of racial justice work, but I don't necessarily trust that it will be liberating for me as well. Mm-hmm. That there's any kind of self-interest or even that that's allowed. Right. <laughs> but um, but I'm hearing from you that there's this kind of freedom that you feel and ease about oh, it now. Yes. Yeah, there's a freedom and an ease. And, it you know, it takes a while to get there. And I remember people saying, you know, strength is in the struggle. My whole life was about avoiding struggle. It was so much about comfort. And boy, oh boy, I, I cannot tell you my, I want to say a funny term is coming up for me and I've never used it before, but it's like my, my relationship muscle. My relationship muscle has gotten so um, strong and supple. I, and I, you know, I put that with my kids and my siblings and my husband and my closest friends are right in that crowd. I think everyone's noticing a difference. And the conversations that my family, my siblings and I are capable of having are so different. That was just one 
you know, just one of me kind of got the ball rolling and they all came along and now they're, we all push each other in different ways. And we never used to push each other. It was all about being polite and, um, being a good white girl, being a good white girl. And I would, so I was writing today on my blog, a, a comment to somebody who I was in that little conversation with on one of my uh, blog posts. And I almost came up with the, I, I talked about changing the conversational climate. And I think that's one of the most liberating things is, is the climate change around conversations and around friendships that I feel in, in my life. That's part one of my conversation with racial justice educator Debbie Irving, the author of Waking Up White. In part two next week, we talk about the challenge of responding to racist comments around the dinner table. You know that terrible moment when you know you need to say something, but you don't know how to not just sound self-righteous. Debbie is going to help with how to turn that moment into something actually constructive. We'll also talk about why it can be so stressful for people of color to be in predominantly white spaces and what white people can do about that. It's all coming up next week, Monday, December 29th at 1 p.m. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the previous ones in this series, with Peggy McIntosh, Paul Marcus, Shelley Touchluck, and Natasha Wilson. While you're there, please subscribe to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing this show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next, Speak Freely. Speak Freely.